0: Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Wednesday, May 10th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A Utah woman who wrote a children's book about coping with grief following the death of her husband has been charged, oh, not with plagiarism, with murder and most pertinent to the story at hand of her husband cory richens cory spelled stupidly k-o-u-r-i ought to be a crime for that is alleged to have mixed a cocktail for her husband eric and laced it with five times the lethal dose of fentanyl richens told friends that he believed that his wife was actively trying to poison him on valentine's day of 2022 He became violently ill after accepting a sandwich made by Corey. He also fell ill during a vacation to Greece a few years prior. And yet on his last night on this earth, he accepted a Moscow mule from his wife, laid down and died. Buddy, at some point, fix your own food and drink. Poison me once, shame on me. Poison me twice, shame on you. Poison me three times. What are you trying to punch your card for the free footlong? I can't think of a shorter length of time than the gap between... It's okay, honey. I'll make that for you. And now I got it, Corey. Uber Eats order. It's already in. Please, please do not bother yourself. There is some evidence that Corey Richens wasn't even sure the fentanyl would work. I based that on an interview the author gave to KNTX Utah's Good Things.
1: And Corey, I want to start with your story. What happened in your personal life? So my husband passed away unexpectedly last year.
0: Corey Richens is an incredible mother who touched our hearts by sharing her personal story of loss, reads the first line from the webpage of that TV show describing that TV appearance to promote the book. Look, maybe Corey wasn't a bad person. She just knew that this excellent grief book that the world needed would not sell without the first-person hook. And what do I know? Maybe all these authors who got us through the tough times also may have murdered. Joan Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking, that I'd get away with it. Maybe Mitch killed Maury and then met him in heaven for the sequel. Maybe Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was really a murderer. Stage three, bargaining on a plea with the DA. Let's end with the sign-off that the hosts of Good Things Utah shared with Richens in her interview. You are an amazing woman and mom, and we thank you for being vulnerable and sharing this and touching the lives of others. And by touching, we mean with fentanyl, lots and lots of fentanyl. And now I render the most healing word of all, allegedly. On today's show, CNN, Town Hall, Trump, let's have at it. But first, it's ubiquitous, yet so often unavailable. When we need it, we can't get it. But the very act of needing it makes so many more things harder to obtain. It is parking. Henry Grabar is the author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. He joins me to talk about the idea that if we solve the parking problem, world peace would follow shortly after, or close, close to that. Henry Grabar, up next. So when Joni Mitchell talked about paving paradise and putting up a parking lot, I think she meant to evoke a pang, a twinge. Oh, isn't that sort of sad? But if you read Henry Graybar's new book, Paved Paradise, you will come to realize she is really contrasting heaven and hell because Paved Paradise is the ultimate ironic title. We are living in a hell, a hellscape of parking, wrought by the car and decisions along the way, such as to undercharge for parking, and to prioritize parking, and to give ourselves over psychologically and economically to parking. The name of the book is Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Henry Gravara, welcome back to The Gist, a show that you once hosted, I believe.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a while, but uh, I once did some gist
0: myself. Yes. How'd you get into parking? As uh, Was it just by driving
1: and getting frustrated? <laughs> Uh, there, this, this, this book has many origin stories, but, um, one of them is that actually, uh, when we, when we worked together, Mike, I used to bike to work and, uh, I was biking in a bike lane and I got hit by a car. Don't worry, I'm fine. Uh, (laughs) I remember, like, I know. (laughs) I got hit, I got hit by a police car of all things, uh, who was pulling out of a parking spot. Um, And just not looking where she was going, and she just uh, clipped my back wheel, and I sort of like leapt off the bike and landed very acrobatically. Mm -hmm. But um, I had this realization, which is that it's – I was – why was the bike lane – the bike lane was in a dangerous place. The bike lane was exactly in the zone um, where drivers who were turning out were going to turn right into it, and it was right in the zone where drivers who were getting out of their car would open their door – Um, right into your path. And um, I think anybody who's ridden a bike in a major American city has had this experience. And if you start thinking about it, you're like, well, why is the bike lane where it is? Why am I obligated to risk my life just to get somewhere on two wheels? And uh, the answer when it comes down to it is that American cities are afraid to mess with street parking. And street parking stands in the way of, for example, creating a safer bike lane, among many other things. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So a lot of times I'll interview an author and then they'll tell a story and then they'll say and then it hit me. In this case, it literally hit you. That's how you guys <laughs> how you got your idea. <laughs> so it's and it's beyond street parking. Um, one of the people that you deal with uh, was a person who'd like to get into affordable housing, build some affordable housing, you know, make some money at it, but also help the people who need affordable housing. And that wasn't to be necessarily street parking. She'd have parking uh, units in her building.
1: And it's as big a disaster as you can imagine. Take me through that story. That's an amazing story. I found this affordable housing developer in a suburb of San Diego who was trying to build um, basically a dozen apartments for low-income residents who had been evicted from uh, from their apartments and, and basically kicked out of the city uh, a couple decades earlier. And uh, what she found was that even by um, providing the amount of parking that was required by law and by replacing um, the parking on the public parking lot on which she was building, uh, she could not get residents to drop their opposition. Now, you could say, well, were they really concerned about the parking or were they concerned about living next to um, uh, low income neighbors? And I think that's a, a very valid question. But the fact remains the project didn't get built because the neighbors were able able to marshal parking uh, as a legitimate subject, um, a legitimate reason for, for opposition. And, and she spent 10 years trying to build this. And ultimately, uh, it, was, it, it died on the grounds of uh, people complaining about the parking situation.
0: Yeah, but it wasn't even the neighbors, right? It was even people or potential people who would be moving into her unit. Uh, She would say, well, the only thing that makes this affordable is that we don't build
1: extra spaces for visitors, and they didn't care. People's relationship with parking is intimate in the sense that the way they think about parking is this space is in front of me. I'm in my car. I want this space. And they are incapable of seeing the larger picture. In the case of affordable housing development, the larger picture is If Ginger, this affordable housing developer, includes twice as many parking spaces as units, there will be no units because the parking costs so much to build and takes up so much room that if she includes a certain amount of parking, the whole project won't pencil at all. Our relationship with parking, because we cannot get over this psychological fixation on having uh, free parking right in front of our door, constantly available when we need it is stopping us from achieving many things that are actually more important to us.
0: Okay, so you said a couple things, psychological and free. Those are really important. Let's get into it. Uh, Don Shoup, he's the guru of parking and he made some calculations over a decade ago. we, well, you tell me, but basically it comes down to the entire value of all of our cars and all of our roads doesn't even touch the value of our parking spaces, which we generally
1: don't charge for. When you put it that way, Mike, it does sound shocking. But I guess what I've come to see is that when you when you really think about it, we all know that the that car culture has had an enormous effect on American society. I mean, everybody's familiar with that idea. Um, And when you think about car culture, I think you mostly think about the vehicles themselves and the roads, and people don't think about the parking. But the parking, in fact, takes up more room and it costs more money to build. And that sort of makes sense when you begin to actually look at a city because a car spends most of its time parked. I mean, 95% of a car's lifespan spent parked so of course parking is the most important thing.
0: also we think of parking when parking's free or parking is just for you know a dollar an hour, we love it that's that's just that uh, it helps us I guess as where the parkers it's really bad societally and it's really hard to roll that back and so you talk about specifically Chicago, a city in which you lived where parking on the street was for just quarters and that alone, pretty much doomed so much development in Chicago, but it's hard to do anything to reverse that because people get really attached to what essentially is a government subsidy, but they don't think of themselves as being the fat cats who
1: are subsidized, but they are. Yeah, they they, they are subsidized. I think people think, well, I pay taxes, so I should be able to park for free. And I think that argument or pay or pay the meter, and the meter's a couple
0: quarters. And like we we do put quarters in the meter, but when we do that, we don't say to ourselves we're essentially like the airlines getting a bailout on a tiny little scale. <laughs> the government is subsidizing us and hurting uh, uh, the overall goals because of this this um, benefit. That I think we're it's.
1: It, I think that depends, Mike. I think that if you're in a small town and You know, um, there's not that much competition for street parking spaces. Maybe it only takes a quarter or 50 cents an hour to create enough space for everybody to have a place to park when they want it. And in that case, um, I think that system basically works. I think the problem that you run into is you go to a really busy city street um, where parking is very much in demand. And there are meters that are underpriced or there's no meters at all. And so when you show up, there's people parked there Bumper to bumper, all up and down the street. And the odds are, in the case of free parking, those people work there or live there. And they arrived early in the morning and they took those spots. And when you show up to do your shopping or go to lunch, there's nothing available for you. And so you circle the block and you look for parking. Now, that seems like a minor annoyance, right? But it turns out that just that circling for parking, two, three minutes looking for a parking spot, makes up one-third of traffic in these busy neighborhoods. It's responsible for millions of extra miles of driving every year, an unimaginable quantity of local pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. And so the goal of the parking reformers who would like to see um, these streets better managed is to see parking meter prices go up a little bit. And it's not a money grab. It's not, at least in the ideal situation, run by a benevolent city official, it's not the idea here is not to raise money. uh, And certainly not to take as much money from drivers as possible. It's to manage the parking. And it turns out that making people pay for it is the only way we have of trying to organize this very scarce resource in in busy places.
0: Okay, I'm going to get to solutions in a little while, but since I have you, a parking expert, I'm going to ask some of the nitty-gritty questions I've always asked. So I go to a Jets game, and they charge me $50 to park, and I'm like, oh my God. But then I'm like, wait a minute, why didn't they charge me 80 Why didn't they charge me 180 I mean, I guess there's a certain hypothetical point where fewer people will actually avail themselves of the parking than is worth charging more. But it does seem, when you have especially the Stadia, or places where there are no other options, what's the upper limit? What does the industry say about how much you can charge? And I'll ask a double-barreled question. When one stadium says, we're going to charge 75, do all the other stadiums look and say, all right, we're going to charge
1: 75 now too? So the the first question is, why charge? And the answer is uh, behavioral decision. It has a sort of a nudge, right, on your behavior that ultimately uh produces a more beneficial situation for um for for the for the venue right and then the second part is what's the limit and i think this is a situation where this is even more clear in um in cities and in public places than it is for say the jets but like if you charge so much for parking that people will not pay for parking anymore then it's time to lower the price of parking. Like, right. <laughs> one of the beautiful things about it is that it's so flexible, <laughs> you know? If, if you charge 50 bucks and everybody says, well, that's worth it to me, um, then you might not be charging enough. So, and this is also true for like um, Six Flags has some sort of abusive parking policies <laughs> where they like, <laughs> they will not only charge you an arm and a leg to park, but they will not let you park in like neighboring lots and walk to Six Flags Yeah, to ensure that they have a monopoly on the parking. I don't support that. I don't support (laughs) using parking (laughs) as a tool to extract as much money as possible from people because they have no other choice. I don't think that's good. Um, I do think that when it comes to making people pay for parking, the question of how much will they pay is really simple because Mm -hmm. what you're trying to do here is not raise money. You're trying to make sure that there's enough parking for everybody who needs a space. And that is as true for the Jets as it is for your local Main Street. And, And the way to do that is You just see how many people are willing to pay and how many people park. And if it turns out the block is half empty at 2 p.m. on a Saturday, looks like you're charging too much. If it turns out that people are circling the block over and over again, you're not charging enough. It's that simple. How much can one of
0: these very uh, high-trafficked urban garages make? Either, I don't know if you know the uh, dollar figures offhand, but compared to, say, how much if
1: you built retail in the space or uh, residential in the space? Uh, It's a tough question. I mean, uh, a major big city garage can make a ton of money in a downtown or at an airport, right? Did you know that airports make more money from parking than they do from airplanes? It's often like the largest single source of revenue for airports.
0: Well, I thought Cinnabon was number one. Cinnabon's number two. Cinnabon's number two, yeah. (laughs) I know the answer to this to you. Does New York, I bet if you don't, you're gonna be able to figure it out. Does New York City make more money for people parking and paying the meter or people incurring fines from not paying the meter? In other words, do they want you to break the law or not?
1: That is a great question. I suspect- that the answer is that they make more money from fines and fees. Um, that was certainly the case in Chicago up until 2008 and is the case in most American cities. And that just goes to show, Mike, how poorly managed parking is, right? It's the largest single land use. It's the most expensive and most space-consuming part of the whole car culture. And it is just managed like garbage, right? Because like this is the opposite of the way things should work. We should make more money from meters and try and discourage people from breaking the law. We don't want to give people tickets. We do not want to trap them in these cycles of fines and fees. Revenue-driven policing of the type we saw in Ferguson, Missouri, that is bad, right? But cities have realized that by undercharging for parking meters and forcing people to park illegally, they can make more money from illegal parking than they do from from the meters themselves. That's really bad. And like, you know, so if you run a box truck truck, Delivery service in New York City or the Postal Service, Fresh Direct or UPS, any of these guys, those trucks rack up tens of thousands of dollars in parking tickets every year. It's a massive source of revenue for New York City. They even have their own department that sort of adjudicates these fines with these major corporate operators on a separate Basis, right? It's not like you getting a parking ticket. They have a special line because they get so many parking tickets. And that's obviously not a great situation because double parking is the absolute worst thing for traffic. It creates so much traffic. And yet the city is tacitly endorsing this practice by refusing to charge enough for parking to clear space at the curb for these people to make their deliveries. So,
0: Much of our solution rests in the hope that one day we'll have driverless cars, and maybe we'll share them, and they'll just come pick us up when called. They could go park wherever, somewhere outside of town. Okay, let's hope that happens. What else? What else are we looking at for us as a solution?
1: Well, I think, for starters, I don't expect everybody's going to stop driving tomorrow. Um, As, you know, the the median American household has 2.2 cars, so we're not saying it's time for you to go carless. I recognize that um, the country is large and sprawling and people depend on their automobiles to do many things. However, if a household with three cars can go to two or a household with two cars can go to one, then that unlocks all sorts of possibilities for what we might do with all this space that has up to this point been dedicated to parking. Um, right. So that's part of it. So, And, and the driverless car plays into that. One car for the family,
0: takes dad to work, takes mom to work. <laughs> He's on a different schedule.
1: I guess I'm not as optimistic about driverless cars. What if Elon Musk wasn't the main guy trying to fund him? Would you be more optimistic? <laughs> I just think there's so, there's so many challenges, right? We've been hearing yeah, about this yeah. for 10 years and hearing that it's it's always one year away. And, uh, and so far, we haven't seen it. Mike, I'm more optimistic about a very primitive piece of technology. The foot? The bicycle. Damn it no electric bicycles i think the electric-
0: bicycle the, that's what you got brained on that's how it started you get hit you're like bicycles are still the solution okay what but that's and that's how you? it comes
1: back because okay first of all we got to talk about e bikes not not mm-hmm. just regular bicycles i was being a little facetious when i said it's a primitive piece of technology i think the e bike is a an absolute revolution in local transportation whose effects we are just beginning to see right because it permits people to do errands of one, two, three miles uh, on a device that to store takes up a fraction of the space that it takes up to store a car, and not to mention it costs a fraction of the purchase price uh, to, to buy one. Um, so, and to take it back to you know me, be, me getting hit by a car on my bicycle, like I think one thing that that has to happen uh, in order for us to be able to take the car ownership per, for family from three to two or from two to one or even from one to zero, is that we need to unlock this virtuous cycle between land use and transportation. I would say there's, there's two cycles here. There's the bad cycle, where you build more parking lots and so more people drive because it's not safe to get around any other way and things become less dense and then you need more cars. And before you know it, everybody's driving everywhere. That's the bad cycle. The good cycle is you build a safe, protected bike lane between the residential neighborhood, and the popular city park. And all of a sudden, people who used to drive their cars decide, oh, you know what? I can ride my bike with little Timmy to his baseball game, and I don't need to drive, and I don't need to look for parking. And so maybe that parking in front of the grocery store gets, uh, you know, sold off and turned into affordable housing for the people who work at the grocery store, etc. And, and, and maybe they ride their bikes too, because there's more places for them to ride safely as well. And, and so uh, some family that lives there decides that they don't need two cars in the garage anymore, they can just go with one. And those are the kinds of cycles that I think it's, I can imagine beginning to take place, if cities would get serious about finding ways, besides driving for people to get around.
0: Uh, there's a lot of statistics in the book which point out that if we didn't have parking, we'd have, however, m- much more space in urban centers and then think about what that would do in terms of um, you know, being able to house people. Um, uh, i like for you to share those uh, statistics as well you can. But my question is, now that we see the collapse of the office space, is that having an impact on the calculations in other words we say wow think about it if we didn't have parking then we'd have all this uh more sp- space curbage and that can be dedicated to let's say residential putting people in but we're now seeing uh, the collapse of something that is already taking up space so how does that affect the argument about let's do away with parking this will open an opportunity for us
1: I think there's ups and downs with the collapse of office space. Uh, the downside is uh, pretty clearly that we might see a collapse in tax revenue and a collapse in public transit service that makes it hard for people to get around without a car. That's obviously bad. Uh, the good thing about this, perhaps, is that office commutes are some of the longest trips that people take. And to the extent that people need three cars per family or two cars per family, it's because we need a car to get to the office. People, The trips that people make in their neighborhoods... They may make them by car, but they're often quite short. And if they were given the opportunity to safely make them on foot, I think they would. And so um, to the extent that people are freed from the obligation to go to the office and spend more time in their neighborhoods, maybe that creates an opportunity uh, for people to spend more time not driving. I think that's certainly one of the reasons that people like working from home is they don't have to drive to work anymore. How many people are
0: assaulted or murdered each year over parking?
1: Assaulted, I can't say, because, you know, I have a Google alert that tells me about parking space murders. And so I would say it's between 25 and 50 every year uh, murdered and assaulted. I can't say it's probably a number I couldn't even count.
0: That's unbelievable. Henry Grabar is a staff writer at Slate who writes about housing, transportation and urban policy, a past guest host of The Gist and current author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Henry, thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Former President Donald Trump will be on CNN tonight to speak to Republican and undecided voters in a New Hampshire town hall-style event moderated by CNN's Caitlin Collins. I hope she will ask him about the recent ruling that found the former president liable for a sexual assault. And I hope that she'll ask him why it took so long for him to tell the January 6th rioters to stop rioting, calling them very special, beautiful people. If, she might ask, a voter standing or sitting in front of you, thinks that these rioters were wrong to enter the Capitol and cause damage in your name, are you prepared to look that voter in the eye and tell them that they're wrong? That the January 6th insurrectionists were right? That's sort of a good question I look forward to, it's a great opportunity for Collins and for viewers, despite Trump's bluster, bombast, bellicosity, bullshit. The New York Times, previewing the town hall in an article by Michael Grinbaum, Wrote, Donald Trump on CNN, a live town hall reignites a debate. First sentence, should a leading presidential contender be given the opportunity to speak to voters on live television? Well, yeah, I mean, I think so, even if it's a loathsome such candidate, because, you know, democracy and interviewing a person doesn't mean you like the person. It means you'd like to ask them some questions. Speaking for the affirmative, meaning, yeah, interview the guy, and agreeing with me, Grimbaum quotes Ted Koppel. Is he a legitimate object of news attention? You bet. Grimbaum quotes Bob Schieffer. We're in the business of telling people who's running for what and what they stand for. All right. Two of the most influential and hard-hitting TV interviewers of the last 30 years. For the negative, i.e., don't interview him, Grimbaum has this graph. Joy Reid, an anchor on rival MSNBC, derided the event as, quote, a pretty open attempt by CNN to push itself to the right and make itself attractive and show its belly to MAGA. And Chris Hayes, also of NBC, calling the town hall, quote, very hard to defend. Well, Ted Koppel did, very succinctly. Didn't seem hard for him. So did Bob Schieffer. I suppose you will get criticism from a rival network, who will lose in the ratings that night, to CNN, and who could never land an interview with Trump in the first place. That last part about their inability to get an interview with Trump, that's not actually a critique. It's an indication of their style of coverage. Mehdi Hassan, on his MSNBC show, also dedicated some time and some programming, to CNN's programming. I do hope CNN chief Chris Licht doesn't have to end up apologizing for giving Trump this platform in the same way that his predecessor, Jeff Zucker, had to apologize for running all those Trump rallies uninterrupted on CNN back in 2016. Personally, I wouldn't interview a man who has used live interviews to incite violence and tell lies who has in the past encouraged violence against CNN itself. I wouldn't normalize him in that way. Not only is Hassan advocating the wrong call, I just don't believe him. Oh, now, the post hoc charge of hypocrisy would preclude Hassan from accepting a not forthcoming invite to interview Trump. But... Hassan's stock in trade is subjecting bad people and liars to tough interviews. He interviewed Betsy DeVos brother and Blackwater security founder Eric Prince to devastating effect. Clips of the takedown went viral, providing Hassan with the biggest boost of his stateside career. He's interviewed many Trump officials and apologists, also with the intent of using said interview to expose the threadbare nature of their argumentation. And he's done that successfully. He wrote a book about winning arguments, which lays out how to dismantle liars. Talks about the different types of lies, the strategies for questioning lies. Now, now, all of a sudden, this one liar, this very bad and prominent, but also important liar, he's a no-go zone? Why? Because he won't go on Mehdi Hassan's show or network? There are some columnists out there who agree with the, I guess, overall MSNBC sentiment that it's wrong for the cable news network, CNN, to present the cable news viewing public with an interview of a newsmaker. Jackie Calms, columnist for the LA Times, wrote, Really, CNN? A town hall for Trump now? Yes, after being found liable of sexual assault! And defamation, now is a very good time to ask some questions. When he's leading the Republican field in the polls, a good time. The interview might not be a good time for Caitlin Collins. She'll be deluged with criticism from MAGA Nation if she does her job right. She's already being deluged with criticism for just taking the assignment, that deluge from the left. But yes, of course it's a good time. Because, you know, I don't think deplatforming works ever, it certainly doesn't work, to a guy with the power to command attention from every platform there is, except maybe the one or two who exempt themselves. But to think that scrutiny is indistinguishable from celebration, that's an argument put forth by people who don't at all believe in the power of changing minds, the power of debate, the power of inquiry. That's not Mehdi Hassan. That goes against at least the stated purpose of all those MSNBC shows. I'll now quote Tim Johnson, writing for Pointer, the journalism think tanky type institute, CNN. Should the cable news network have on the former president, even though Trump has often been critical of CNN and all non-conservative media? Should they have Trump on, even though he's liable to say anything, even if it doesn't come close to resembling the truth? Should they host someone who is known to spread dangerous misinformation and disinformation? Absolutely. This is a no-brainer. Of course CNN should have on Trump, Jones continues. As of this moment, he's the Republican Party favorite to be the presidential nominee in 2024. That makes him newsworthy. Assuming they agree to no preconditions, CNN is in charge of the evening. And the rest, and this, I like this part the best, and the rest of the media observers and critics, as well as news consumers, should be okay with this. Well, it's not unusual to agree with Tom Jones this much, but I do. Anyway, I don't expect whatever questions Trump gets from granite staters or Caitlin Collins that he will be defeated or contained or vanquished. That's a myth. He'll be doing much more press. He'll be available in the future. And when a future interview might be conducted by, say, NBC's Andrea Mitchell or Chuck Todd or Savannah Guthrie, Well, then I expect the walk-off and protest by MSNBC hosts will be an interesting story to cover in its own right. That probably won't happen. But if it does, I will never tell you you're wrong for being interested. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is in charge of banking and finance for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's Advertise AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening.